Welcome to the Film Photography Podcast for October 15, 2010. My name is Michael Rosso, and I'm here with... Dwayne Palku. Hi, Dwayne. Hello, Michael. How are you? Great. It's nice to be back. Wonderful to be back. It's a great place to be. I can't tell you how much fun I have when we're doing the podcast. This is one of my most fun things in the world to do. It's a nice zone to be in. No distractions. Nobody but. It's just talking about cameras and film. Talking about... Our favorite things, uh, shooting pictures. And uh, thank you for joining us, all of our listeners out there, all of our regular listeners out there. Today we're talking about, four, among other things, 4x5 photography. We have gotten a lot of requests to discuss 4x5 photography. Following our usual, I usually chat about something topical at the beginning of the show. Chat away. Thank you, Dwayne. I will have you know... I have some exciting news. As you know, I am a big fan of what's known as the Polaroid 300 camera. Very space age-ish. Yes. You recall we brought this to that movie premiere? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Under the Scares at the Tribeca Theater. Is that the one? That's the one. Polaroid introduced this camera earlier this year. It uh, takes credit card-sized instant pictures. The camera uses the same film as the Fuji Instax Mini. Or if you can find it, the old Polaroid Mio film. So there are three types of film. But the, the greatest, I'm, o- I'm opening a pack right now of Polaroid 300 film. And going to uh, put it into the camera. I'm kind of new to Polaroid photography. I really just started just a few months ago mm-hmm. getting into it and Really, I'm just so thrilled. It's so much fun and so satisfying to shoot instant stills. Loading the camera right now. But uh, folks out there may be saying, Mike. Here we, here we go. The black card. Now, there is no expression on the black card, Dwayne, like the Impossible Project. Ooh. Folks out there may be saying, but Mike. Why? Why are you talking about the Polaroid 300 camera? You've, you've talked about it so many times. You've already introduced the camera. Well, what gives? Yeah, what gives? Well, you know what? I saw on Polaroid.com that this camera was going to be available in the U.S. in a big box store. That's a brick-and-mortar store, which there aren't a lot of anymore. You have Walmart, you have Best Buy, you have Target. And the word on the street was that the Polaroid 300 camera was going to be in Target stores. Really? And that's pretty cool. Whenever. How, well, how do you get it now? I bought this on Polaroid.com back in April. Oh. Back then. This was not a retail store you bought yeah, this in. Back okay. then, it was not even available in a retail store. And this got shipped to me direct from Polaroid.com, which is pretty cool. But ne- nevertheless, to, to, to reach the masses... To reach uh, regular folk, people like you know your family or your mom and dad, your, someone who doesn't, your sister, your brother, someone who doesn't shoot film photography, when you put something like this in a store, it all, all of a sudden opens it up to a whole different audience. So I got in my buggy, and I drove down to the local Target here in Pompton Plains, New Jersey, on Route 23, and lo and behold, Dwayne... On their shelf, in electronics, was Polaroid 300 camera. Look at that. In a, in a box. In a box. And Target also carries Polaroid 300 film. Unbelievable. And I'm pretty excited about that. And I'm excited about that for the whole film movement. It doesn't matter that it's the Polaroid 300. It's cool that it's the Polaroid 300 because I love it. But if this was a Holga camera or anything film-related... 
anytime a film product is being introduced to a large retail store, it's something to be happy about. It's a victory for film photography. In a world so, so overrun with digital photography. Overrun! It's nice to see film in a store. So if you're thinking about getting the Polaroid 300 and you're in the US of A, think about walking into Target and, and picking it up. But that's not all, Dwayne. Do you know you know that I'm a fan of putting close-up filters in front of the lens to get portraits? Seen you do it. Yep. Well, I went online and just by chance on eBay, I found this Disney close-up lens that is designed for the Fuji Instax Mini 7S. And it looks like uh, Mickey Mouse. It's Disney brand. It is Mickey Mouse. Oh. And maybe you'd say, well, it's a piece of plastic. It's a little overpriced. But you know what? I'm going to use this so much that, for me, it's not overpriced. I will get so much use out of this. So if you go into eBay.com and you type in close-up lens mini 7S, you will find this little filter which can be used on either your Polaroid 300 camera, I hope, I haven't used it before, or on your Fuji Instax mini camera. I'm going to attempt to put this on. So you're basically, you got a camera with a little Mickey Mouse head on the end of it. <laughs> oh my God, there it is. Oh my God, it snapped on. Now, Dwayne, in this Mickey Mouse ears mm-hmm. is a mirror. A mirror. So you could shoot... Do you know how on like Facebook, young women shoot images of themselves, and they're always holding their arm out and like mugging the camera? Sure. This allows you to, with your instant film camera, do that. So I can mug... I can look at myself in the Mickey Mouse ears and just... Yeah, try it. Yeah, give it a shot. Do your best MySpace pose. Uh, where's the shutter button on this? The shutter button is right there. Okay, so like this. So you gotta hold it out and like look at yourself in the mirror and then like strike it like a pose. <laughs> nice. Now I do like getting in to do close-ups. I'm also going to attempt to do a, a portrait of Dwayne with this new filter that I, that I purchased. So I went into Target and I brought my this camera and I was just shooting the place up. Like I saw the Polaroid aisle and I saw the Polaroid 300 on the shelf and I just pulled out of my bag this camera and I just started like... There was nobody around. Really? No one cared that you were doing that? No one cared. No one cared. Everyone was just like... You la di da Close up. Aisle shot. Wide shot. Exterior of Target. I figure it was a day to celebrate. Now what I uh, use sometimes is a piece of uh, diffusion in front of the, uh, the the flash. The flash to uh, you know make it a little uh, less overexposed. And what is it about the camera? Everyone seems to keep getting hung up on the same thing over and over. Like, hey, man, that's just a Fuji camera. We brand it. Like, you know, stop. It's about fun. It's about the fact that regardless of what brand you're using, regardless of what camera you're using, that you're producing instant pictures 
that people love. With the new Polaroid camera and the new Polaroid color film, you can take the most beautiful color shots you've ever taken, and the easiest. Even with color flash pictures, you don't worry about special settings. You get a perfect exposure automatically. Have some fun. Exactly. I haven't been to one get-together or party where people haven't loved handing out little instant pictures, regardless of whether I'm using Polaroid 300 or my Color Pack 2, which I sometimes bring with me. You get color flash pictures automatically with a new Polaroid camera. And uh, that's my exciting news regarding film photography in retail stores this month. As they say, it's all good. Tomorrow is John Meadows Photo Walk in Kleinberg, Canada. I want to wish everyone on the photo walk a lot of luck, good weather, and uh, shoot some great Kodachromes. This is in uh, Ontario, Canada, right? In uh, Kleinberg, Ontario, yes. And, um, Do you remember the uh, commercial in the States as a kid for Ontario, Canada? Ontario. For real? That's it. That was... Yeah, it was uh, it was somebody a woman singing Ontario, Ontario, Ontario. It was the like uh, tourist yeah, the it was, department it was, of tourism. Right, that was a very That's very awesome. big commercial, maybe like 60, 67, 68. It's pretty nice up there. It's beautiful oh, yeah, up there, especially this time of year. Oh my goodness! If you are listening and you're like, well, what is this Kodachrome? What is this Kodachrome? Google Kodachrome. You'll find out that it's a uh, film stock that Kodak manufactured 1935 till 2009. There's only one lab left that will develop it. And they're stopping processing on December 30th of this year. So this is the last few months to shoot Kodachrome and get it processed. I may sound like what's called a broken record. I don't mind because there's only a few months left. So if you would like to shoot a roll of 35mm Kodachrome film, I will give you a roll from my personal stash if you will make me the promise that you will shoot it and get it to Dwayne's photo in Parsons, Kansas and get it processed before December 30th, so you can experience it. So if you're going to use it, I will give it. Filmphotographypodcast at gmail.com. We're getting close to the end, so if you have not experienced this wonderful film, do some Googling, check it out, go to Flickr.com and look up Kodachrome to see what everyone's images look like, and let me know if you'd like in. We also have the Kodachrome Film Photography Project Group, which is a group on Flickr that is the group of all the shots of folks that have shot Kodachrome from the film that I've supplied. Oh, oh, wonderful. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not really just, it's not limited to that. If you're a listener of the podcast and you're shooting Kodachrome, please deposit your images in this group because what it does is in one central location it allows us to to look at them to look at all the images and then hopefully if something should come to fruition like a fpp kodachrome calendar yeah, there they are there, there they are. are now of course if i'm going to do a calendar and i'm going to pick images i will notify you i'll never use any images without anyone's permission so you should know that uh it's a great place for you to post your images so that everyone listening to the podcast can kind of go to and kind of check it out to see what everyone's Kodachromes look like. Kodachrome Film Photography Project Group at Flickr.com. Go to Flickr.com and search groups and then search that name. Hi, my name is Butcher. I'm Brain Chomper. And I'm Gambling Man. 
We're here to tell you about our show, The Killer Reviews Podcast. Each week we discuss movies new and old, talk about our lives, and every once in a while we'll have interviews like Fred Vogel from Tag Pictures, Daniel Harris of the Halloween franchise, and Charles Gibson, the special effects advisor for Terminator Salvation. We also have special episodes like our full review of the Alien Quadrilogy, a Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective, and Clash of the Titans. And we're also very, very sexy. Especially you, Gambling. Yeah. Our podcast is available at KillerReviews.com. And if you sign up for our forums between now and 2012, you enter a chance to win a romp in the sheets with Big Butch. Hey, it's Mike Rosso, and I'm here to tell you about The Pink Delicates and their full-length album, Who Stole the Quiet Day. You've heard lots of cuts here on the podcast, and you can check out their full-length album by going to cdbaby.com and searching pink delegates their music is right there ready for download purchase or buy the cd check out the pink delegates who stole the quiet day Hey, this is Michael Rosso, producer of the Film Photography Podcast. If you visit our newly revised homepage, filmphotographypodcast.com, you'll notice that in the upper right-hand corner there's now a donate button. This means we want you to get involved. You can donate a vintage camera, as long as it works, some film, or U.S. dollars, which we'll turn around and put right back into the podcast, filmphotographypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Later in the show, we're going to uh, talk to Dwayne, and we're going to be talking about 4x5 photography, and Dwayne is going to be showing us one of his cameras. Right now, we're going to talk about a few of the giveaways we have going on. We're giving away free processing, courtesy of Sharp Photo and Portrait in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and this was set up by our new friend, Spencer Eklund, at Sharp Photo and Portrait. Hello again, Spencer. Yes, Spencer came up with the idea. He was inspired by the podcast to do something together, to do to, to, to have a group effort. And I think this is awesome. So I went into my uh, massive film vault, and I pulled out a batch of Ektar 25, expired but cold stored, so it should be perfectly fine. And I'm going to give away 10 rolls of film. In other words, we're going to pick 10 winners, and you get a roll of film and a certificate that will give you processing, a set of prints, and a high-resolution CD free of charge awesome 10 folks so send your entries to filmphotographypodcast at gmail.com in the header put processing and uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and we're going to be picking 10 winners sometime in november awesome we also have a holga 120 tlr camera donated to the podcast Courtesy of the fine folks at Freestyle. Dwayne, what do you know about Freestyle? Freestyle is a great, great store because they still handle traditional film photography materials. They have darkroom stuff, you know, largers and, and chemistry and paper and film. And not too many people carry that anymore. And they're also big on Holga stuff, too. The yep. Holga wood. 
<laughs> they're in Holgawood, California. They're in Holgawood, California, and they're very nice people as well. They're very, very reliable. And their prices are not insane, and they have fast shipping. And you know, all around, they're the good guys. Now, Dwayne, not the biggest fan of toy cameras, his eyes widened when he saw the Holga 120. Widened, sparkled, and glistened. You th- wanted to shoot with it. I think I want it. I think I want one of them now. Yeah. So get your entries in in the header. Put Holga 120 TLR. Tell us a little bit about yourself, about what you do, what excites you about film photography. Filmphotographypodcast at gmail.com. Get your entries in, and we're doing the drawing sometime in November 2010. But that's not all. There's more? Yeah. No. We are giving away Pat Sansone's book, 100 Polaroids. This is a beautiful book. For those of you who don't know, Pat Sansone is in the band. Wilco and The Autumn (laughs) Defense. I took a trip into the back of my mind And I found there that nothing was mine I wanted badly just to see you again I thought I could just waltz back in time He's in a band called The Autumn Defense with his um, bandmate Is he from around here? With his band, I don't know with his bandmate John Sterock. John, I always mispronounce. I always mispronounce John's name, and John Fidelli always kicks in. But John's not here. I have to take a clip from the last show and just put John's voice in. Sterock. Unfortunately, John's not with us today, but we do have his empty chair and a microphone set up. So there's a bit of a bit of his uh, his Presence. essence. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. Pat is in the Autumn Defense, which is touring, by the way, this fall in November. On the East Coast here in the U.S. and about, you can go to theautumndefense.com. You know, the Autumn Defense, if someone asked me, what do they sound like? What are their inspirations? You know, what what sounds do they bring together? You know, what do these guys listen to? I would have to say, first and foremost, guys, you have to like let me know if I'm, if I'm correct here. The influences of George Harrison, maybe some Nick Drake... And these guys definitely, I mean, these guys like who would listen to Scott Walker. He's driven through the spirit to sanctus tonight. Through the dark hip falls, screaming, oh, you mumbles, kill me and kill me and kill me. Oh, my. Yes. I never knew who Scott Walker was until you... Do you recall, like, back in the day when we were doing the AC podcast together, Mm -hmm. that I would drone on, like, every episode about Scott Walker? I never knew who he was. Yes, that is very true. You would just go on and on about this Scott Walker guy, and I I didn't know. And then you played me some of his music, and it's very... He sounds like... It's very... So super moody. Yes. Like gloom and doom. Right, it's like... Twenty-one. Twenty-one. (laughs) <laughs> anyone does not know who scott walker is please google scott walker the google and if you have the opportunity because you know last year i did not know who scott walker was until i saw the documentary 30 century man on netflix and i saw the likes of brian eno david bowie talking about who Scott Walker was. And I knew who the Walker brothers were in England, but I had no clue. And it was like a very mind-opening experience. And I love, the, I love discovering new bands, like the band, the music that opened this particular show, 
uh, Dwayne, is a band called The Eye. E-Y-E? Nope. T-H-E, the I. I, just the, the letter. The letter I. I. And uh, they are from Norway. Uh, I received a letter from a listener, Stian, from Norway, who said, Hey, you know, I love the podcast, and I like to shoot Kodachrome. I sent Stian a roll of Kodachrome 64, and he said, Hey, you know, by the way, you know, there's this great band here called The Eye. And he said, um, he shot some band shots of The Eye. And he said, they're making awesome electronic pop and have, they have kind of a futuristic theme. And I thought... Kodachrome was the perfect film. So he's going to shoot the eye on the Kodachrome. Oh. So then I said, well, you know, why don't you contact the eye and see if they want to send some music over and we'll, we'll play it on the show. So then I received a letter from the eye saying, hey, great, glad you're interested. And they sent a MP3. And uh, the eye is a duo consisting of the brothers Lars and Turge Sparby. Their music can be described as electronic pop music ranging from melancholic synth-driven songs to more traditional upbeat pop based around the acoustic guitar. So you can find them on MySpace, myspace.com forward slash the I space. And we're going to play their tune on the way out of this episode. But I love music. I love discovering new music. And I remember when actually it was John Fideli who turned me on to Wilco. He gave me uh, an album called um, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot back in like early 2003. And I remember it's a very different time here in 2003. And John gave me the disc. And I put it on my windowsill. And there it sat for literally five years. Five years? At least. It just sat on the windows on the windowsill. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. He just sat there. Because John is into new music, and John's always like, yeah, this band Wilco, you got to check him out. Yeah, this band Wilco, you got to check him out. So I finally popped in Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Loved it. Uh, became an immediate fan of Wilco. And of course, once I get into a band, I tend to get into it, you know, wholeheartedly. Is that a good word? Yes. And, uh, you know, I went to see them most recently in Montclair. Uh, so Wilco and Pat Sansone was performing with them. And then when I was watching one of the Wilco documentaries, there's a Wilco documentary out. In it, there's the Pat Sansone shooting Polaroids. And I thought, what the? Exactly. I thought, what? What? So then I did a little research. I found Pat on Flickr and I sent him a Flickr mail and I said, hey, Pat, it's great shooting Polaroids. Love your music. And then he turned me on to his band, The Autumn Defense. And then uh, he notified me and let me know that he was putting out a book called 100 Polaroids. So now the book is out. It's You can get it at the Kung Fu shop. Everybody was Kung Fu fighting. Which is the shop. The Wil- it basically is the Wilco shop. If you go to, uh, I believe it's wilcoworld.net. Or if you just Google Kung Fu shop or Google Wilco, you'll find Pat's book. 100 Polaroids. Where's Wilco based out of? Wilco is based out of Chicago, Illinois. Chicago? Chicago, Illinois. I don't know if Pat is based out of Chicago. It's a beautiful hardcover book called 100 Polaroids. Pat has been traveling around the country shooting Polaroid. And it's a really awesome slice of life. A lot of uh, defunct Americana. A lot of old signs. A lot of 1960s sort of... 
you're traveling along the country, we're here in the U.S., uh, we're here in the East Coast of the U.S., Dwayne, when you get into the Midwest, you find a lot more derelict. Yeah, I've been uh, been there many times, and I think the reason why is that there's a lot more space. There's a lot more farmland there. Here in the crowded northeastern United States, if somebody wants to build something like a strip mall, they tear down what's there, right? and they build something in its place. Whereas when you go to the Midwest, there tends to be a bit more space. They will abandon a given spot and build something elsewhere. So there's a lot of older things that still remain. Right. And those things, you know, even though they've been there, a while and maybe a little rusted out. They're not going to remain forever. We're fortunate that Pat has captured some of that uh, in his book, 100 Polaroids. We're giving away a book, hardcover book, with a Polaroid 600 one-step close-up camera from my personal collection to go with a book because the book may inspire you to shoot some Polaroids. Along those same lines, before the interstate highway system was established in the United States, one of the main routes to drive out west, I think it went from Chicago to Bakersfield, was Route 66. Yes. Everybody knows about Route 66. <laughs> there's a famous song, Get Your Kicks, on Route 66. And there's a preservation society that actually is actively involved in preserving those old landmarks because there are still stretches of Route 66 that still exist in California, Kingman, Arizona. Really? So I was reading about this recently. And so if you like to shoot that kind of stuff... Uh, I would just Google Route 66, and you you can you know if you ever make it out there, it's cool stuff to shoot. Have you been on any of the Route 66? I was on a stretch of it near Flagstaff, Arizona, when I was a little kid, and it, they were act- actively still using it as 66. And I think uh, when they really really kicked in finishing the interstate highways, like in the early 70s, is when that just became a byway. They just ignored it. They ignored its upkeep. Uh, but now, because it's a tourist attraction for a lot of people, right. there's a more concerted effort. There's maybe even a little bit of money that flows into keeping it up and making a point of posting the Route 66 sign on it. Right, right. In fact, there used to be a TV show in the States, wasn't yes, it? There, yes, there was. Um, so parts of it still exist. And parts of the original diners and drive-ins and motels. Um, That's pretty awesome. Yeah, with the old gas pumps from the 50s yeah. and stuff. They're still out there. Yeah. you, you got to look for it. Yeah, but, but, uh, so, so his book reminded me, immediately reminded me of those of those kind of derelict things. Yep. Filmphotographypodcast at gmail.com. Get your entries in. In the header, put 100 Polaroids. Tell us a little bit about yourself. And we're going to be doing a drawing sometime in November. And rumor has it that Pat may do a book signing in New York City. We don't have the dates yet, but keep your eyes peeled to our Facebook, on our Flickr group, just to see if uh, Pat will be making the rounds to, uh, if Pat will be doing a signing. I know he is touring with the Autumn Defense. You can go to autumndefense.com and uh, check it out. Mail's in. This letter is from Ryan Duffy. Ryan says, hello. I am Ryan Duffy, and I discovered your podcast by looking through Flickr on the Art of Photography podcast forum, and someone mentioned your podcast. I love the humor and natural conversations you have about film. I first got into photography when I took a photo class senior year of high high school. You know what? So did I. Very, very similar. I, uh, I got into photography when I was in high school as well. After looking on Flickr at photos taken with a Holga and Diana, I fell in love with a dreamy look they so easily produced, and he immediately bought a Holga and four rolls of film. Since buying my first Holga earlier this year, I now use film exclusively for my fine art with several cameras ranging from Holgas and vintage Diana to my Canon Rebel 2000 
and Seagull 4B. Ryan says that he feels that digital images look sterile compared to images shot on film. There's a definite difference in look. Without a doubt. I sent Ryan a roll of Kodachrome, so I'm looking forward to uh, Ryan contributing uh, maybe an image or two into our uh, film Kodachrome Film Photography Project group on Flickr. So, uh, Ryan, thank you for writing to us. Thank you, Ryan. This is uh, Ron O'Connor says, First, thank you for the Film Photography Podcast. Wow. Well, you're welcome. It's a real pleasure to do. And do you know what? Do you know what I forgot to mention, Dwayne? What, Mike? You must have forgotten something. No, I definitely forgot. Do you know what I forgot? I'm getting pretty excited. Today, today, the 15th of October, do you know what it is? The 15th of October? No, I don't. Just say it's your birthday. It's the Film Photography Podcast's first birthday. Get out of here. We, I didn't. It's been a year. We have been doing the podcast one year. I'm so psyched because we're going to the Jacob Javits Center. Yes, we are. Yes, the PDN Photo Expo. Where's my sheet? Here it it's, is. It's truly become my favorite day of the year. October 28th through the 30th of this year, 2010, at the Jacob Javits Center in New York City, the PDN Photo Plus International Conference and Expo. Dwayne and I went last year. It was a lot of fun. And we're going to go again this year. If you're going, send us an email, filmphotographypodcast at gmail.com. We're all putting a little hats with propellers on them. Yep. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll trade digits. So and we can, we'll, uh, I would love to meet you guys and girls to shake your hand and maybe take a photo of just to hang out. It will be awesome. So if you're going, please do let us know. And today is our birthday, Film Photography Podcast, one year. And I was so excited about film and, and you know, getting back to shooting photography that, I don't know if you recall, Dwayne, you've been a guest on our uh, Alternative Cinema podcast. I started de- devoting an awful lot of time on the Alternative Cinema podcast to talking about shooting film. Did you? Yes, I did. You did? I did. To I, the point I didn't know. where it was just like, I'm like, you know what? I have too much to say about film photography. I think that we need to spin off and do a film podcast, and I invited Dwayne to to come on and co-host, and then we have sometimes John Fideli with us as well. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm glad we did. Yes, me too. I'm glad we did. It's been a really fantastic year, and in a very short amount of time, we've really gathered a nice group uh, that listen to us every episode. And I want to thank everyone out there for listening. So, uh, Ron, thank you for thanking us for doing the podcast, but I'm also thanking everyone out there for listening. Because it's built a genuine community where people share images and they share interests, and they also like they they send stuff in, which is amazing to me. Yeah. And this in this day and age, where people with economy is tough to mail stuff. I mean, you know, yeah. people actually get something and they package yeah. it and they mail it and they ship it. I, I truly thank them as well. I just think it's a it's a marvelous thing that they're doing. Yep, I'm really really happy to be doing this. It's been a, a wonderful year of discovery for me. Uh, discovering uh, the, the joys of shooting instant photography with Polaroid and some Fuji films. And a clock. Ag for clock. And realizing the, the sad truth that Kodachrome will be no more in a few months. I've been, been pushing myself to go on some photo walks and have some fun and just shoot a heck of a lot more in these last days of Kodachrome. So, Ron, you're welcome. He says, like so many others, I stumbled upon your site somehow and now there's no turning back. You have helped to reset my compass back to the direction of film photography. I still shoot digital, 
but I rediscovered the beauty of Fuji Velvia 50. Oh my goodness, it's as good as it. Well, it's not as good as Kodachrome, but it's the second. Uh, it's the you know the second. It's entry. the bomb. Yeah, it's the first runner-up. Uh, on his six four five medium format camera and a recent vacation thanks to FPP. So glad that I discovered Film Photography Podcast before we left. So I'm, I think what he's saying is that he discovered the podcast and then that inspired him to shoot film on his vacation as to uh, as opposed to shooting digital. I just finished scanning over six. 100 slides, mostly Kodachrome, negatives and prints that were left in my uncle's estate. Many years of Kodachrome slides dating back to the 1940s and on through the 1960s, all still with exceptional color. We're having a family reunion. Wish I had a roll of Kodachrome to put in my Canonet or Canon AE-1. Well, he didn't have the Kodachrome in time, but I did send Ron a roll. I would love to shoot one more roll. And that you have. Ron, thank you so much for listening. So I'm happy. I'm happy that you're happy. And you're happy that we're happy. Now, you can't get much happier than that. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. Do you know that Chevy Chase was in that video? Yes, he was in that video. And? And Robin Williams. Who was the Who was the, the singer? Bobby McFerrin. Bobby McFerrin. Now, in my younger days, when I had hair, <laughs> and, I, and I used to uh, be very dark-skinned in, in the uh, summer because I'm Italian-American and I have a dark pigment to my skin, and I wore round glasses, people would stop me and be like, Bobby McFerrin. Really? Yeah. He's... Like, you look like Bobby McFerrin. Are you serious? Yeah. Ooh, and I was, I was very thin. <laughs> Don't worry. That song raised so much hatred. Like, who are you? Be happy. What's his name? The uh, He was the spoken word guy. I think he was the lead singer of, of Black Flag, was it? Why is he Why is he angry at that song? Who's the, What's the guy's name? Henry Rollins. Henry Rollins doesn't like He him. was furious. Why? He said, who are you to tell me to stop worrying and be happy? But the world the way it is, you know who what? are you to tell me Great. to be happy? That's just terrific. But, Dwayne, you and I know, maybe now, maybe not 20 years ago, that, you know what? Just don't worry and be happy. Seriously. <laughs> Everyone's all, you know, the same thing with, you know, there's some some sites, you know, some of, some of the form, uh, film sites. Everyone's so uptight. So angry, Mike. So angry. Everyone on top of each other about like, you know. Well, you know, like, you know, in thread, you know, people just in threads, even on Flickr, waiting to pounce on someone that says something that to them seems ridiculous or, how dare you ask that question? Don't you know that that question's been answered in this thread? And you know what? There's a beautiful actress whom I'm friends with named Paula Labaretis, and she, uh, I uh, did her first glamour photo shoot ever back in about 98, and she lives in L.A. now. And I occasionally send her a Facebook message, and I'll say, wow, you have a cute butt. Something funny, because I know her. Yeah. And then all these fanboys, they're like, I'm going to come get you. They defend her. They just defend her. They, 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 we're, I'm gonna, one guy said, I'm going to find out where you live and I'm going to come get you. And I'm like, are you, are you out of your mind? Are you, out of your, are you really out of your right. mind? Right. Are, you, are you that, that crazy and filled with internet rage that you're going to go physically accost someone who made a, a joke with his personal friend? I mean, come on. Yeah. What what I is mean, it? What is it? I mean, there are people. Listen, the folks that go on a, a board or a group or a thread and ask a silly question, I will be the first person to admit. You know what? It's probably a silly question because your answer is only a few clicks away in the Google. The Google. Because many times I, I have a question about a film stock. 
you know, I'll do the Google. I very rarely ask a question in a forum. But you know what? Everyone's not that experienced, and not everyone is, you know, trolling the boards. I mean, I admit I troll the boards. I mean, I contribute to the boards as well, but I'm always on the boards looking around, see what people have to say. And it's only one way to be in this life, in my opinion, and I really mean this. And that way is to be polite. That is the only way to be. There's no other way in public. Now, if you want to be miserable in your house to yourself, I think that's fine. But some of the worst things I've done in my life was to act out or to uh, address anger towards people. And it's not worth it. But that's how I feel. Keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. But if, if you're younger than me, I uh, think that, uh, Mel, you know, be cool, man. If you're my age or older, then just relax. And uh, you make it angry at me. Henry, you know what's going to happen, Dwayne? Henry Rollins is going to send me an email. Henry Rollins is going to come to your house. He's going to be like, hey, man. And Henry Rollins is just like, He's like an actor now, you know? Yes, he is. A tattooed actor. He's a de- decent actor. He's a decent actor. So, But well, he's, not, he's, not sh- he's not shaking up the world. I mean, maybe he is. Maybe he, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't follow Henry Rollins. This is from Christian. Christian says, I discovered the podcast three days ago. Someone posted a link in a forum in a film group on Flickr. It's probably me. And I'm officially an addict. I started with episode two. That's odd, don't you think? Why not start with episode hmm, one? I don't know. I couldn't resist when I saw the obsolescence. Here's why. I, I couldn't re- resist when I saw the obsolescence of digital cameras and like, whoa, this blew my mind. I've been listening while I hoof it, ar- hoof it around in Beijing, where I spend most holidays visiting family and friends while taking pictures of the pollution. <laughs> Is there pollution in Beijing? Air pollution? Yeah. Oh my. Do you remember the Olympics? Worse than uh, L.A.? It's, the, it's supposedly the worst air pollution in the world. Is that true, Christian? I don't know if it's true or not, but... So, uh, Christian apparently listens to our podcast while hoofing around in Beijing with his camera. I already get funny looks being a six-foot-tall, blonde Scandinavian, and then suddenly burst out laughing at total inappropriate times, like when I'm a pa- in a packed subway or as a troop brigade of Chinese military march past me. Wow. So he's listening to our podcast and bursting into laughter. And like Tiananmen Square. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. He says, I used to live in New Jersey when I was in high school, and honestly, I spent the entire time waiting till the next time I can go to the city. Yeah. You, I mean, if you're a kid in New Jersey... You want to hop on the bus and go to Manhattan. I worked, I worked on the in Long Island in Nesconset, Long Island, this past weekend. Long and Island. I, and I drove the LIE, the Long Island Expressway, and it hits Manhattan right about 34th Street. Yep. And it was nighttime, and I'm telling you, you know, I've lived my whole life, and still, when I rode that highway and I saw the skyline of New York City at night, still gave me chills. It gives me it, chills. Yes, yes, it does. No other city has that that same. I mean, not, not that I've been in every city in the world, but something about it. I mean, you see the Chrysler Building, you still see the uh, New York. It's yes, it's Empire one of the Empire State kind. Building, uh, and, you, and you get you come out the other end of the tunnel, and within two seconds, hey, little piece of crap out of the road. Christian goes on to say, 
I moved to Scotland. Scotland. For university. Christian gets around. Scotland. Man, you're all over the place. Scotland. I moved to Scotland for university after that. And after six years, I actually miss it. I guess New York, he's saying. There are so many things to criticize, but that's what made it Jersey. Hey, forget about it. I had a blast. If I'm ever back in town, I'll pick up a Taylor ham, egg and cheese sandwich, and do a dozen laps around Bridgewater Mall. Yo, Bridgewater Mall? Bridgewater Commons Mall? Yes. yes. Oh, I've spent much, much time at Bridgewater. It was my f- Bridgewater Commons Mall. Yes. Off of Route 22. Yes. Near the Somerville Circle was my wife's favorite place, ex-wife's, ex-wife's favorite place to go. I spent many, 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 many hours and yeah, a couple of laps. It's huge. Bridge- Yo, let's give somebody a shout out to Bridgewater Commons Mall That's in right. Bridgewater, New Jersey at the intersection of 202, 206, 287, and 22. Close to the Somerville Circle. All right. Christian, now uh, he teaches science and physics at a small school in Ben Pecula, which is a little island off the north of Scotland. I've had a digital camera for years, but I'm starting to shoot film with a heavy Seagull TLR and Seagull Seagull folder and a Holga that he picked up at a dirt market. Scotland. I bet they don't got moles in Scotland like they do here. Yeah. I sent a roll of Kodachrome 64 to Christian in uh, Scotland. And uh, this is his note just saying, hi, love the show. Keep it going. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. I've never been to Scotland. No, I've I've never been. I want to go to Scotland. (sighs) They have castles. I, I got a passport in 2000. Uh, Snowdonia and. I got a passport in 2003, and then I lost it for five years. <laughs> no kidding. Maybe we're sitting underneath the Wilco CD. No, I lost it for like eight years. I, I just found it. I was going through. Actually, I was doing podcast stuff, and I was, I was, you know, putting uh, when we were re- recording the podcast at John's studio, in Montclair. Yeah. I had to pack stuff, uh. so I grabbed a bag. Mm-hmm. A bag that I haven't used since like uh, the early days of EI Cinema. When I used to go back and forth to LA. I open up the the you know the zipper, zip, reach in, and there it is, my passport. Hmm. So have you ever used it to go ab- abroad? I've only been to Canada and Tijuana. That's it. That's it. I've only been to Canada and Nogales. Where's that? It's like the Tijuana of Arizona. Oh, so you have not been abroad either. I have not been. I've never been to Europe. No. Wow. Well, we really need to go. Uh, I'm afraid. Are, are you really flying that plane over the Atlantic Ocean? Yeah, for like nine hours. Like nine hours. Planes do make me nervous. You, you never hear about planes crashing in the Atlantic, though. Never. Yeah. Never. Probably very safe. This is from James Bronco, uh, Hillside, New Jersey. He's a student and film photographer. He started shooting film last year along with listening to the FPP. Hillside. Yeah. Right near Union. He's acquired a medium format Mamiya and a Polaroid Color Pack 2 to add to his already, you know, to his existing 35mm camera. I love shooting film and crafting traditional gelatin silver prints in my bathroom. I gave uh, Jason a roll of Kodachrome and uh, Jason, I hope that uh, went well. If you can, please do post your images to Kodachrome Film Photography Project Group on on Flickr. Uh, Dwayne, what is uh, what is he doing in his bathroom? Gelatin silver prints. You don't know what gelatin silver prints I are? I sort of do, but can you explain, please? Well, gelatin silver prints are just photographic paper that you use in a darkroom. And it's oh. called gelatin silver because uh, they use silver halide in a gelatinous emulsion that's coated on the paper. So gelatin silver prints is an artsy-fartsy name not, I'm not that criticizing him for using it. Everybody uses that term. Right. But it's just a, a term for wet darkroom prints. Like if you go to this, go to uh, Freestyle and buy, you know, uh, Kodak 
uh, variable contrast paper or Slavich or uh, you know Efke paper or Ilford multigrade that's silver gelatin paper. Right. And it's the stuff you use that's not inkjet paper. And there I- there is a difference between these days at least between printing on real paper through an enlarger through chemistry and going to Target or Walmart and you know putting in your JPEG and then punching it up and then it prints right out. What what oh, is that? Huge difference. What is that? Huge. Well, um, when you're getting a mass-produced print like at a Target, yes, they're inkjet prints. I think they're inkjet, inkjet prints. There might be dye sublimation or something else, but there's usually a dot matrix involved. Really? Yeah, it's, it's, still, a, it's, it's still archival, right? I don't know if it's archival or not, but I mean, it's it's an ink on paper. It's some sort of there are so many different processes. I don't know about all of them. Right. Uh, a store-specific thing, but I mean, it's usually some sort of ink on paper process. When you're talking about silver gelatin prints, it's actually silver halide in an emulsion that's coated on a paper. Right. So the smoothness yes. of the tonality and the number of tones that you can get in that paper is much greater. Really? It's a, it's a smoother tonality, many, many, many more tones, I personally think. Now, there are those who think really super high-end inkjet prints match silver gelatin prints in a darkroom, and maybe they do. I've seen some pretty amazing ones. Right. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, for me, silver <clears throat> gelatin prints is still the standard of quality for right. black and white printing. And I mean, it's it's been proven to be archival, you know. I, I rarely do it, but occasionally I'll print something out on my Epson 1200 inkjet mm-hmm. printer. I do it so infrequently that when I do on a glossy piece of paper, it looks pretty good. Yeah, I mean, the quality is getting better and better and better and better. And I'm sure uh, if you make the best print you can in a dark room and the best print that you can on an inkjet printer and put them side by side, they both look great. If you go to Unique Photo in uh, Fairfield, New Jersey, which mm-hmm. is right up the street here, uh, well, it's a few miles away here, they uh, are very big on these printers. They have the very, you know, the larger Epson printer, and they have mm-hmm. samples. And they carry a large variety of inkjet papers. The prints look amazing. Yeah, some of them are like there. There's paper out there now. Right. Like uh, Hanamule is a company that makes. I guess it's the industry standard Hanamule rag paper. It's cotton fiber-based paper, just like old silver gelatin cotton fiber paper used to be. And a lot of the uh, the surfaces of these papers, the the semi-gloss, the lusters, the pearl finish, really, you know, they look like Oriental Seagull graded paper from 15 or 20 years ago. So right. there's amazing, amazing stuff. On the inkjet side of things too. Right. But I mean, it's expensive. It's really, really expensive to set up a a dark room. A, a top. Well, I say I was going to say a, a top end inkjet printing oh, inkjet station. Printer, yeah. You know, I mean, it's a computer and it's the, uh, the you, cost of the ink. Well, I and mean, you can buy an enlarger for two hundred dollars and set it up in your bathroom. Do you, you think know? it's just an, an aesthetic of 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 what you want to do with your photography? For example, I know on online there are a lot of you know groups that are like you know. Pro, this is a really nice segue into a letter that was sent to us by uh, Gary Gary Benson in the UK. He says, how do you guys feel about digital darkroom stuff? I've been getting my films processed and scanned straight to CD, no prints, and I'll mess with them on the computer if they need it, or if I want to. But there's some groups out there, like APUG, that get real huffy about this stuff. And... I guess there's a lot of back and forth of, you know, what is real photography. If you're making real prints through an enlarger, through chemistry, that is photography. But if you have a digital darkroom, that it's almost like some groups or people feel sacrilegious. And Well, photography as means writing with light derived from Latin. So for a lot of people feel that 
unless it's an optical process that right. it is not strictly defined a photograph or photography. And they're right, it's not, because fo- photography, photograph means writing with light. Right. Whereas when you're shooting digitally and you're reproducing uh, inkjet prints from a computer or whatever process you're using, you're just making a- electrochemical reproductions. So if you want to get down to semantics... You know, well, right. yeah, then it, then it isn't a photograph, well, but it's called photography because it's what people, it's where the state of the art technology is now. You have to call it something. Well, I, I mean, I am proficient in Adobe Photoshop because of my uh, my job at the studio with the motion pictures of designing uh, cover art, which you're very familiar with because you shot a majority of it. Just where I am right now in my setup, in my studio, I, I just don't, I'm not in the mindset groove or space right now to have a traditional darkroom. I own an enlarger, but currently I have a digital darkroom. And of course, if I shoot my film and do my own scan through, let's say, an Epson V700, and then I send that file to the folks at, let's say, Blue Moon Camera in Oregon, they're going to make a traditional... No, they're not. How are they making a print? I don't know, because you know why, Mike? Because there's so many different processes and so many different machines out there. I don't know what everybody uses. I just don't. Isn't it conceivable they could, they could be taking my file and actually projecting it in a darkroom onto a piece of paper? I don't think so, because it's a very, very cost and labor... In, it's labor-intensive and it's cost-inefficient to do it that way. It's probably some sort of machine that uh, scans the image and just just kicks it out of a processor. Right. The first time I, I used Blue Moon, they did. They sent me two prints for free as a test, saying, "Hey, you know, check out the prints that we can offer you." And they were traditional prints, and they were amazing. Hats off to folks out there doing this process. There's so many different ways to do things, and there are so many different uh, digital film hybrid ways of working. A lot of photographers will shoot with a very high resolution digital camera. And then they'll make, on an inkjet printer, a negative on a piece of clear right. inkjet material. Right. And they'll contact print that right. on silver gel and paper or platinum printing so that they have a platinum print that they made from an inkjet produced negative that they made from a digital capture. So what do you call that? It's a hybrid. It's a hybrid. I mean, is it still photography? Well, yeah. I, I, what else are you going to call it? Right, right. You're going to walk around, well, this is uh, this is my digital inkjet printout or platinum <laughs> hybrid. I mean, it's too much to say. Right. It's still photography. You're still making an image. Right. Or when I was working professionally in uh, uh, commercial videography, because I had photo experiences many times... I was hired to to shoot, and uh, I would shoot. I would get my negs transferred to digital. This is in the late 90s, so it was still early early on in the Photoshop days, still at Photoshop 3 or 4. And uh, I would uh, tweak my levels in Photoshop and then send those images, the JPEGs, high-resolution JPEGs, to a service who would make 35-millimeter slides out of it because it had to go to a client, a corporate client, who's projecting slides at a presentation, you know, in one of those carousel things. Right, before they had the digital projectors, which really came into vogue like four or five years ago. Yeah, so it wasn't that long ago that regardless of how you're starting or, you know, using a digital intermediate, which is done so often now with motion pictures, you know, the film is shot on 35 millimeter motion picture film. The film is then digitized into something like an Avid editing system. The film is then digitally edited. All the effects are digitally composited and then that file is output back to 35 millimeter negative is you know a negative is struck and then from that negative all the prints are made that wind up going to your local movie theater which is in of itself an awesome thing these days when i go to the theater i'm always kind of aware and if you look around out of the corner of your eye you'll see actual film 
carrying cases. Yes. Yes. There was, there was one in, uh, some, uh, where was it, uh, Middlesex, uh, New Jersey. I went, went into it, and there was, they were left them in the lobby. Yes. They just, they're just waiting for a pickup. Yeah. They're waiting for FedEx to come pick them up. What I found funny about that, I saw the same thing, is as, as I was nonchalantly just like walking out, like, <laughs> I'm so familiar with these cases, I could have literally just picked up one in each hand and just walked out. With a print of whatever you know. So they still, there's still. I thought a lot of uh, projection was digital these days. No. So they still actually got this this motion picture projector with motors in it. As of that has a light yes. and a lens, yes. and they're yes. taking film. Yes. They're loading up this projector. And either a projector or a large platter that sits like a, on a table that spins like an old eight-track tape, really? feeding out the film through the projector, shining light through it. Absolutely, 2010. A majority of theaters are still projecting 35-millimeter film. I and that's guess. why you still see scratches yep. and dust yep. and blips and pops because that film has been run through that thing six times a day. Absolutely. You know, By the end of three weeks, it's, it's torn to crap. And you'll see at the end of a reel, you'll see in the upper right hand a little circle and a little pop. And that's the notice to the projectionist to change a reel. So you'll see a real change, and maybe you don't notice it, but if you make yourself aware of it, you'll see a little jump, and then maybe the next reel of film, if it's the same scene, the color balance will be ever so slightly different. I never noticed that. Yep. When you're in a theater and you're sitting there in the dark, your your eyes and your brain are actually helping color correct that image. Mm -hmm. It just happens in your head. And... There are little discrepancies that your your brain just lets go. So on a real change, look for a uh, difference in color. Because once the blip goes and you, you your brain notices it for a second, then all of a sudden everything's back to fine. Will the day come, because you already have uh, high-quality digital still projectors, when they don't send film to a theater, it's just... You know, FTP'd. It's just a, it's just a big file yep. in, a, in a big case, and they put it in a slot, and they press a button, and it's projected digitally. Will that will that happen? I uh, since I don't have the actual answer, I can only guess, and I can give you my opinion. I think that opinion is yes, and I will tell you why. I think that there's a pre-existing format in every theater in the country, and at this time, it's just not economical to turn over those theaters to gut all of that equipment to go digital. But I think that the life expectancy of the machines, I think that maybe as these machines start conking out, that they will be replaced. I think you'll see a transition to where as a theater can get a file transmitted. I would say that a lot of it also has to do with distribution and bean counting. <laughs> also, you, you, I'll ask you what you mean by that in a moment, but I know that there's a projectionist union. There is a projectionist union. You're absolutely correct. And if and it's hard to get in it because, you know, a lot of people want to be projectionists because right. they sit around and they, they get to watch movies. And let's face it. Well, they work hard too. There's a lot of work to be done prepping of films. Yeah, but you're not, you know, it isn't like you're, you're working out in a, in a, in a, in a smelling tar. It's sort of like the guy who drives a truck for a major band like Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. It might be a union gig. And his job is to drive that truck yeah. and to sit in that cab. Right. That's it. That's it. That's, That's it. it. So, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of politics behind keeping those people's jobs intact. And, I, I mean, I imagine that projecting a digital file is a heck of a lot easier than maintaining and managing all that film. I, I think when I say when I say bean counting, I mean 
it equals fear. And that fear is the fear of a file going out on an internet and the fear of a rogue theater playing the show without reporting the royalties. Right now, oh. they produce X amount of prints. Those prints go out, and they know where those prints are going and where they play. You know, back in the day in the 1970s, which was a little more of the Wild West, uh, what would happen is you would get a, a hit film, and a theater owner, you know, I don't know which theater owner, they would take that print, and they would make a bootleg. Really? Yes. They did it with movies, too. Yes, so that they would... Now, I don't know from major motion pictures how much this went on, but it certainly, it certainly, certainly went on, definitely went on with one of the highest grossing independent films of all time. And you may say, Mike, what is the highest grossing independent film of all time? And that film is Deep Throat. Deep Throat. Majorly bootlegged. Majorly bootlegged. And you back know, then, because it was pornography... It was not regulated. No. Yeah. So I People think people do what they want, knowing no one, no one do anything to right. them. I think that I think that studios feel comfortable. Once again, this is my opinion, but I think I have enough experience with this to to probably be right on. If anyone out there, maybe Randy Babacam, Randy, you work in the motion picture business. Uh, maybe if you have an insight to this, you know, I think there's a certain comfort to sending out prints, X amount of prints to theaters. They go in, they play, and then they come back. I think file sharing is a scary thought for uh people that own motion pictures and are in the movie business so because of the possibility of theft well uh i talk about it a lot on the alternative cinema podcast internet theft of movies is it's it's out of control i mean isn't even even releasing music to the point now where there's no money to be made essentially because people get music for free there's an article in the, the most recent and actually when did it come out late september uh, the issue of Rolling Stone magazine, Roger Waters from Pink Floyd is on the cover. There's a, a big article in there about you know, the death of the music industry because of file sharing. File sharing is a huge, huge problem. Uh, in theaters now is uh, Robert Rodriguez's film Machete. Yes, with Danny Trejo. Danny Trejo in the lead and uh, Steven Seagal. <laughs> Danny uh, Trejo finally getting his his starring role. That's right. And here's a clip. No, just kidding. That really wasn't a clip. It really was not a clip from Machete. But the uh, reason I meant mentioned Machete, because I bet you if you Google it, you'll find a file share of it. Now, I don't know if they're you know policing it. It's a, it's a very popular film right now here in the U.S. Uh, I don't know if top ten films, if maybe they're policed a little more heartily. But if, you know, if there's a movie, an independent horror film, oh my God, it's just so, so stolen. Disneyland is really a world all its own. A wonderful place to have fun. And a wonderful place to take pictures. But so is the place where you plan to spend your vacation this summer. Wherever it may be, plan to save all the enjoyment. Relive your entire summer in big, clear, colorful movies. And it's easier than ever with this new Brownie automatic movie camera. It gives you correctly exposed pictures every time automatically. For instance, as we move along this jungle river in Disneyland, the light changes every inch of the way. But you get each new scene correctly exposed with a Brownie automatic because it has an electric eye that changes your lens setting for you. So, whether you're in bright sunlight or in deep shade, 
or whatever your light, you get the correct exposure. Even if the light changes while you're actually shooting. And what's more, you're always ready with a Brownie automatic when the unexpected happens. Look. Now, because this Brownie camera is automatic, I was able to get those three terrific shots that fast. The hippo in the sun, the guide in the deep shade, and then back to Mr. Hippo. The Brownie automatic movie camera is yours for $74.50, or as little as $7.50 down. Other Brownie movie cameras start as low as $32.50. Why not start this summer to save all your good times with a movie camera by Kodak? And remember, wherever you are and whatever you do, fun's more fun when you save it in movies. A few more letters, then we're going to talk 4x5. Excellent. Tom Chamberlain, I recently moved from Boulder, Colorado to Portland, Oregon. The first thing I did was to use the Google to find the closest camera shop, and sure enough, Blue Moon Camera and Machine is only four blocks from where I live. The Google. I heard you guys mention them on your podcast. The first thing I thought was to shoot you guys an email. Turns out... You already know about the place. Uh, you guys should come out here, and I'll show you around, or the next time I go home to Yonkers... I'll drop you a line. Portland. He says, Tom also says, in regards to Owen Kelly about using jet dry in place of photo flow, okay. he says, don't do it. You could photo flow for two minutes after the final wash. For whatever reason, he doesn't say, he's saying, don't use jet dry on your film. Okay. Okay. To all the jet dry people out there, sorry. Machete. Uh, G- Gianmarco from Sicily says, your podcast was very good to listen while Hey. I- yeah, hey. Gianmarco. Hey, Paisan. Hey. Hey. Ciao, Gilda. Remember hey. Ciao, Gilda? Not really. What's that? Oh, uh, it was uh, Gilda Ragnar. On oh, okay. SNL, the first or second season. And uh, she was followed by a camera. And she played like the paparazzi stalked woman. Oh. And there was, goes, but I love you. And she would go, no, 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 please, no, no, keep away from me. And it's called a Chow Gilda. Chow oh, Gilda. gotcha. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it's a very funny bit. Your podcast is a great listen while I browse Flickr or do something on my site. And yes, you are funny, but funnier when John is with you. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. I, well, you know what? John is the one of the funniest people I've met in my life. And he's he inspires people because he always says something funny and I... I will pick up on it, or Mike will, and it inspires humor. I mean, this podcast is not as funny as the last one because John isn't here, and that's true. Yeah, I agree with you. Oh, yeah. John uh, breaks things up. Tony Kwong, our friend Tony Kwong, who donated the uh, Fuji Instax 200 camera, which we'll be giving away in a month or so, he says, uh, hey, you know, thumbs up on the low bandwidth version of the show that is available. Uh, a, a few folks have written in about the low bandwidth, which begs me to ask the question to Dwayne, Dwayne, do you now have high speed? No. <laughs> Coming soon. Just don't no. have it yet. Have have has the low five version file helped? I got to listen to the show. Because of the low five version? Yes. For real. Yeah. You can, not, li- you can listen to it. It's it not ta- a chore to download. No, it takes a couple of minutes and you can listen to it on a dial up connection. Wow, I'm glad we did that. That was actually Rob Nunn's... Suggestion? Yes. Rob uh, does our show notes and a friend of the podcast, and he has his own podcast over at robnunn.com, R-U-R-O-B-N-U-N-N. Hey, fellas at FPP. I make sure to listen to your podcast every month. You are making my three-hour commute to work a little less painful. (laughs) What? You commute three hours a day 
This that is, is insanity. This is Joe Rosado, Mr. Staten Island, New York. Joe, where do you commute from? The Staten Island to do the city? Three is it that far? No, but the traffic. Oh, you know what it is? If you're in the city and you need to get to Queens, it's like you have to take like the bus from Midtown to the train and then wait for the train for 15 minutes and then get on the train and go to this train and then get off the train and get on another bus. It could literally take three hours. So it could. I, I just, that's, wow, it's a lot. Three hours a day. I mean, let's 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 talk about four by five. I mean, no disrespect, but that's a lot of time. It is a lot of time, Dwayne. There are an awful lot of people awful that lot. do an amazing amount of commuting that spend four plus hours per day in a car. Uh, I, I, power to you. I couldn't yeah. do it. I, I did it for two hours a day, and you know, for first few years, I was young. It was fine. Listen to some tunes. Bad weather, you know, skidding off roads, hitting deer. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. It's like it just it becomes, you know, a real, really tough. But what are you going to do? Like Peter Galland. Peter Galland was a, whom you listed this on the uh, FPP podcast Facebook page, was a legendary glamour and pinup photographer in Hollywood, California, who recently passed away. Yes. And, I actually uh, have a note here from uh, a listener. I was a huge fan of his, and I, I, I corresponded with him a couple of times on his birthday. I always wished him, I, always, but I wished him a happy birthday. And he, he oh, Dwayne, thank you so much. And he, in the late 1990s, there was a, a movie called Femalian released by uh, Full Moon. Yes, that's right. Full Moon releasing, and the star of it was a girl named Vanessa Talor. Okay. And uh, I photographed her a few times for Femme Fatale magazine. And looking through one of Peter Gallen's old books, there was her picture. And he did a pinup of her on the beach in California. And I said, who is this guy that photographed the girl that I worked with? And that's how I got to know who he was. And that's how I collected some of his books. And he has a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful website. Go to petergowland.com. And it shows, this is my point, how he would, went from an apartment to a smaller house to a bigger house in 1950s, 60s era Los Angeles. And he always put his studio in his house. He didn't want to commute. Right. He didn't want to have an overhead of another office. Right. And he was, uh, and he didn't do it like to hang out with the chicks. He was always a married guy, and it right. was a husband and wife business. And uh, he he said in one of his books, having a studio in my house either feels like I'm never working or I'm working all the time, but I would never have it any other way because I have a door, and there's my private life, and there's my studio beyond that door. And that's and it has pictures of his studio, and he photographed a lot of movie stars and a lot of the uh, you know the, the glamour pinup kittens from the '60s and stuff. You know, like right. the uh, it was just amazing looking at his site. I'm so sad that he passed away, but he was 93, so he was photographing Venice Taylor when he was like 73. Really? I'm, I'm 52, bemoaning like having photographed models for 20, 25 years and how the drama just gets to me. And he was doing it at he was doing it probably up until he passed away. Wow, unbelievable. This letter actually And he photographed sticks. in four by five. He photographed By the him. way, I was thrilled I was thrilled when Dwayne mentioned my favorite glamour photographer, Peter Gowland. Um, I am a Peter Gowland nut, and I've collected almost all of his books. I was happy that he and his wife, Alice, autographed a few of the books for me over the past years. That's awesome. Anyway, I was a little disappointed when Dwayne didn't mention Peter's passing. Yeah, what happened, Dwayne? 
I didn't know that he passed away probably until two or three months after the fact. You know, it wasn't like I talked to him all the time. I, so uh, I, I just this, didn't this know. letter from Mike. I was like, Mike, Dwayne has dial-up. Let's cut him a break. Yeah, really. Let's cut. We're going to cut Dwayne a break. I lead, live in a stressful environment. These are some books that Mike mentions. 1954, Figure Photography. A great one. The New Handbook of Glamour Photography. Excellent. Lighting diagrams. He, really? he, he codes with numbers and... and and letters, positions of where to put the lights and say like, oh, I see that main light, fill light, hair light, that's a one, three, whatever. I mean, he codes it and it explains how to shoot it. It's great. That's awesome. And he says petergowlin.com. So his wife, Alice, I guess is alive. Uh, yeah, she's probably, you know. Running the estate. Yeah, he has a, a voluminous archive wow. of, of prints. And he had, uh, he also manufactured in his garage the Gallon Flex 4x5 and 8x10 twin lens reflex cameras. Really? So he was uh, he was a multifaceted guy. He knew how to shoot. He knew how to light. He knew how to write. And he knew how to manufacture hardware. No kidding. Yeah, he was a talented, talented, busy guy. And, and a gentleman, too. He's a gentleman, which I like about him. He wasn't, a, you know, a Hollywood sleazeball. Right. He was um, a good photographer. And, uh, you know. He will be missed. Yeah. Dwayne, tell me about 4x5 photography, please. What do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I'm going to shed a little light on us. Yeah, we need some light Great in here. Great thing about, you know, the podcast, I mean, we hang out here in the studio and we talk and talk and talk. And I love when we do them in the afternoon because... It's light out. All of a sudden, it starts getting dark in here. You know, it just all of a sudden starts getting dark. And you like that? What? You like the transition from light to dark? Uh, it, it's, you know, we'll be talking, and I'll, sometimes I'll forget about time. And then only notice when, literally, we're, sh- we're, we're sitting talking in pitch black. Pitch blackness. What happened? Yeah. The apocalypse. So it's getting, getting dark out, because we're talking on and on. Okay. Now, you know what's great about 4x5 photography? What? I don't know a damn thing about it. I haven't reached into that bag yet, Dwayne. I'm too busy uh, shooting with, uh, you know, impossible project film. What I've done is I brought my 4x5 camera with me. And what I'm going to do with Mike is just teach him how to use it. I mean, there's so many different angles you could look at 4x5. You could talk about film and photographers that use it and formats and stuff. But today, let's just talk about... uh, how to use it, and, and, and I let Mike, you know, actually hook up the lens and cock the shutter and, and kind of look through the back of it, and he can give give you, hence, the impressions of someone who's really never done this before. Four by five is just a format. That's all it is. Right. It's a camera. It's just a format of film. It's four inches by five inches. It's a piece of sheet film. Right. And there are different cameras that take it. Some of them are on a monorail. Right. Some of them are press cameras like the Crown Graphic or Speed Graphic. When you say on a monorail, oh, that's actually, uh, when you say on a monorail, it's actually cameras on, like almost like a tubing? Yes, like a rail. A rail. And you just slide it up and down. It's a front and back. It goes backwards and forwards. Right. This camera that I use is called a folding flatbed technical camera. Lingo is it's called a folder or or a clamshell. Is there a particular company that makes it? A lot of different companies make it. Mine is a Wista, and it's kind of a knockoff of the Leinhoff Technicardan. Mm -hmm. But a lot of other companies make them. um, Probably, uh, who's a real popular folder company now? I don't know if uh, uh, there's, oh gosh, there's so many of them. I'm just drawing a blank. Zone 6 used to make them up in in Newfane, Vermont. They used to be made out of wood. Tachihara is a company, I believe, in Japan that makes folding view cameras out of wood. 
Also, uh, Chamonix is a, is a company, I think they're, I don't know if they're uh, monorail, or I think they're folding flatbeds. But the, the point of it is, it just folds and snaps shut into a relatively lightweight, compact design, so you don't have this real big monorail to backpack with, if you want to carry it in a case. Right. And so, I mean, if you were to look at this thing, what would you say that it was, if you didn't know what it was? Oh, if I, if I did not... I'm actually holding the camera. Uh, well, because of my you know, experience with various cameras my whole life, I would tell I would say it is a camera, but I would I would probably guess that the lens is not attached. Correct. Oh, okay. I mean, there's a uh, hot chew. Correct. Uh, there is a tripod mount. Ooh, what is this? That is a side mount for a flash unit. Okay. Or anything right. else you want to attach to that'll take a thread. I guess you could dangerously attach this to the tripod. It's the same thread, right? I suppose you could. I wouldn't do it, though. Tripod mount. And I would guess that there's a compartment in the back to load film. Is the, the film loaded in what's known as a magazine? Film can be loaded into anything that the camera will accept. Traditionally, they go into sheet film holders, of which oh. I'm holding one. Don't open it up or slide it up because there is film okay. in there. But it's just a uh, it's a 4 by 5 inch thing which is very slim and a sheet goes into each side and there's a dark slide that you pull out when you're ready to expose the piece of film now, but also there two are sheets in here there's one sheet in the front one in the back sure now this camera is not it's not a monster no it's not it's I mean, used it, for backpacking really i was gonna say it has a, it has a nice leather handle, handle on, the side. on it you can take this whole kit a lens a couple of sheets of film and a meter and really put it in a bag you could sling over your shoulder. Right. You would never know that this is a, a monstrous view camera outfit. I mean, it's not. Where do you store your, the film? Did you load this in a dark room or a film changing bag? Film changing bag. You did? Yes. And when you take the film out, where will you put it? I will put it in a box. When you buy boxes of film, they usually come with. Uh, they're layered in like three clamshells. Okay. One, two, and then three. And they're black usually. The best ones are, are I think, Kodak. And they just keep the film in there, and I put that in a, uh, a dark bag so that it doesn't get exposed to light until I'm ready to process it. I'm just marveling at the size. Am I correct in saying, did you... Did I scan one of these for you? You scanned several of them for me, Was yeah. this size? Yes. It's a big piece oh, of film. The first thing that people it's notice... It's scary for me because I, I fear I'm going to, you know, go into that... Go over the edge into that <laughs> format... Well, I can't get into it very intensely. It isn't expensive. I mean, I mean, these cameras you can get them. You can buy a nice Toyo monorail for hundred fifty dollars. I mean, it isn't like. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you are diligent about searching eBay, which I do for Polaroid, I mean, I'm there every day, every day, and you find someone, uh, usually gentlemen, who are older, who just figure out that they're never going to use it again. That they, co- they collected cameras and they're just done with it. They're retired, they're using digital, or they have their one, they're keeping their one camera, and they have no need for these other cameras. So they'll give it away. You know, they'll sell it, but they'll practically give it away. And if there is not a big demand for that in any given period of time when it's listed on eBay, you can uh, pick it up for a few hundred dollars. That's, I mean, sometimes these things go up to thousands. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly... Uh, Hasselblad and a few of the other known name brands are getting still thousands and thousands of dollars. But, I mean, you can buy a very nice Wista a D or a Wista VX for $400 for the camera. Right. Uh, I mean, which is an amazing, amazing deal. What you do then, Mike, is you turn these two knobs in the back, these yes. two big knobs. You press this little button and voila, it opens up into an L shape. The bottom 
is called a flatbed. Right. And the back, um, which I guess you could call a rear standard or something like that, that's where the film goes in, that's where the ground glass is. And if you reach inside of the vertical part, you'll find two little tabs, you squeeze them together, and you extract, you pull out the bellows to the camera, you see? Now, may, may I ask a question? Very much yes. like if you're if if I am demonstrating a Polaroid 100 pack camera, it doesn't matter if it's a 100 or a 450, or a color pack rigid plastic Polaroid camera. I can give an instructional on one of them, and it would apply for many. You giving me instructions on how to use this camera would this instructional would this tutorial apply to other brands? No. Oh. <laughs> because the designs are a little bit different from manufacturer to manufacturer. The knobs and levers are in different places. Right. I mean, it isn't rocket science to figure out how to open this thing up. You're going to turn a couple of knobs. It's going to snap open. You look in. You see the bellows in the front of the camera. Obviously, it has to come out and attach to the bottom flatbed somehow. So you have to look around and find where those little levers and knobs are. Right. Specifically, where they're located, yes, those things change. Uh, by the way, if you're buying a camera on eBay, any vintage camera, and it does not come with instruction manual, uh, go on uh, the Google and seek out Mike Butkus. He has a site, a beautiful site called Orphan Cameras. I believe it's orphancameras.com, and he will give you download free manuals for many, 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 many cameras. All he asks is, you know, send a $2 donation PayPal for his trouble to, you know, actually make these manuals available. But, you know, there are great, great things available on the Internet. And looking at this camera, without Dwayne here to explain this to me, if I purchased this camera, you know, I would eventually figure it out. But, you know, sometimes it's nice to have a manual associated with it. And, of course, once, you know, you come close with a camera and understand how it works, it all becomes easy. So, so the camera's opened. Yes. And you need a lens. May I ask another question? Sure. Are there people who, I, I see the way this lens is mounted pretty much in a piece of uh, metal. Oh, thank you. Is it possible that someone could construct their own lens? Like uh, maybe some lens they happen to buy and then put it in their own mount? Yes. It is an entire genre of large format photography. If you go on eBay and enter in lens board, you'll see people that sell lens boards. They'll drill them for you. They're pre-drilled. And there are people that just take lenses. They attach them to a lens board. They attach it to a camera and they see what happens. This so it's, it's definitely, it's, it definitely is a very subtle yet very, you know, fanatical movement in photography to attach different esoteric lenses that aren't even for view cameras. I mean, you could take a 35 millimeter Nikkor manual focus fixed focal length lens and attach it to a lens board and see what happens. People right. do that. Or make your own pinhole camera. Sure. This is a um, beautiful lens, Schneider lens. That is a Schneider Simar S 150mm f5.6. Schneider's the manufacturer. Simar S is the model. 150mm is the focal length. f5.6 is the, ma is the maximum aperture. So you talk about view camera lenses, you're always talking about manufacturer, model, focal length, maximum aperture. Schneider, Apo Simar, 210, 5.6. Is it, is it five six because basically this camera is designed to this is not a, a camera to be walking around with camera you mount on a tripod, so is it 
true that you would not need a faster lens? You don't need a faster lens for a couple of reasons. Number one, people use these cameras many times on a tripod. And also, to make this size lens faster, it would be a monster. It would be monstrously, monstrously big. Now, when you say faster lens, we are, of course, talking about a lens where the aperture will open more. The fastest lens I've ever heard of, in other words, is the one with the largest maximum aperture right. for a view camera. I think someone made an F2.8 one. Okay. And it was, it was, it was, it looked like a, a barrel. Like, for real? It, it was huge, Mike. It was like, it was like, it was, it was enormous because these lenses have to have a lot of covering power. Right, right, right. You know, so um, yeah, you traditionally see things like you know f five six, f six point eight, f eight. If you, am, I, am I correct in saying there's an f forty five on that lens? Uh, this particular one, I did not check. I rarely stop it down that far, but if you look on the scale, this one goes to f forty five. Would you say so? Five six eight eleven sixteen twenty two thirty two forty five. Yes. If you're stopped at f forty five shooting a landscape because of that aperture, because of that 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 f-stop you're using are you dealing with a crisp like an amazingly crisp image because the more it's the more it's stopped down the crisper it is yes up into a point traditionally the crispest meaning the highest accutance the highest level of sharpness at the, at the mid apertures you're talking about 11 16 22 now just stops when you get down f 32 45 you get what's called diffraction limits oh which means that the light is essentially bending so much to get through that small aperture that you're losing sharpness, but you're gaining depth of field. Okay. So beyond a certain point, you either keep or lose a little bit of sharpness, but your depth of field gets to be greater. So Now, that's not true with all lenses. I mean, if you look at some Ansel Adams pictures from... The 1930s, 1940s. I mean, he started Group F45 with his with his cronies. You know, they just believed in stopping the lens all the way down, and certainly those prints are marvelously sharp. So the whole theory of you lose some sharpness when you're stopped all the way down, you know, mm. I don't see it. I don't see it getting soft. But some people feel as though it is. Right. But you definitely gain depth of field. That's awesome. I mean, your zone of sharpness closer and farther away it gets greater. Now, where you put your film? I'm sorry. What do you call that slide? Okay, so you've this. opened. We've opened the camera. What is this called? It's called a film holder. Oh, film holder. Uh, this is different than a magazine. Correct. Okay. Although magazines have been manufactured for view cameras. Okay. How many of these do you own? I think maybe that's it right there. I used to have so many of them. So but you have I, like what, six, seven, eight I over have there? Like Ten, twelve. So you could load up, and you're ready for the day. I load up 24 sheets. I'm I'm good for a day. Right. I'm not going to sit on my tripod, you know, more than six or seven times in a right. day. It becomes very exhaustive. And where will you go? Where will I go? Yes. Uh, it depends. Like I was talking on the last podcast about, like I, I, I tend to be kind of project-oriented. The South Jersey Bridge, Drawbridge. Yeah, I would go there. I'd like, like now I like to go into the city and do some stuff there. I went to Utah many, 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 many times in the 1990s, maybe 20 or so trips. I went to the Sierra Nevada Mountains in California and Yosemite quite a number of times. Mm. You know, so it isn't the kind of thing I'm going to carry it around every day because it's a lot of work to do it. Of course, you kind of, you kind of have to you have to load holders and unload you, them and, and set up a tripod. It isn't something you can casually do. Was Kodachrome made in this size? Kodachrome was indeed. Kodachrome was made up in, up to eight by ten. Wow. But it was never commercially manufactured. I don't think it was very successful. Have you shot uh, Kodak Ektar 100? I have not. I have not been given a sample of it. I didn't buy any yet. <laughs> <laughs> I have we're, we're still trying to get that sample from uh, Eastman Kodak. I have not been given a sample. No. So, what but, uh, do you shoot? What film do you shoot with this camera? I shoot a lot 
of black and white. My favorite oh. films are Trix Pan. Right. And uh, the new T Max 400. And okay. if I want a slower film, I'll go Elford FP4 Plus. Wow. So if you're out shooting, you tend to do the black and white. Tend to do the black and white thing. I do a lot of color in the 90s. And I used to love to use uh, Fujichrome Velvia. Like oh. I did a lot of stuff in Utah and the Grand Canyon. A lot of the colorful right, canyons, right. I used a lot of color film too. Wow. But I go back and forth, you know? Do black and white for a while, do color for a while. Kind of get, you know, oh, I'm going to do color now. Another year or so, I'm going to do colors. Yeah, I would love to try Ektar. Right. I would love to have a sample. The samples <laughs> of Ektar. Yeah, we really would like to have a sample over here at the uh, FPP. So you got your lens on the camera. Yes. And you got a lever here. And you open it up. What does that do? It opens up a little iris in the lens so that you can see what's going on. And you Ooh. pop open the back. And there's your camera ground. Look at that. There's your camera ground glass with your little kind of hood on there. Let me pre-focus it so you can, you can look at something. Let's see. I do have a tripod if that's helpful to you. Well, we're just, you know, we're just talking. You just look through the ground glass on the camera and you could see what it, and get a feel for what it's like to look through a view camera. And the first thing you're going to notice is that the picture is very dim. It is. Where is focus? Here? Come forward. Touch that little knurled knob. What, this knob? Yes. Oh, really? And that goes backwards and forwards. Can you even see me? Yes, I do. I'm taking my glasses off. Now, you might have to extend the bed oh, some. Oh, look at that. I don't know if I'm going to come into focus because I'm you so close. You are in focus. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Wow. That and is... the, and the, the picture is, of course, upside down and backwards when it you're looking. It certainly is, Dwayne. Yeah. And that's a big shock and a big turnoff for a lot of people. It's a big shock. Shocking. The reason why is other cameras have a reflex mirror or a pentaprism. And what happens is the image is turned right side up. And it's, and it's corrected because, you know, but that's the first thing you see. It's upside down and backwards. And once you've composed your image and once you've focused, right. close this down. Do all 4x5 cameras show you the image upside down and backwards? Yes, they do. You can sometimes buy special attachments that have, it's like a big, big, big viewfinder that snaps in. Okay. And a lot of people really like it. Because they get they can see what they're shooting. They can see what they're shooting and they don't like looking upside down and backwards. I don't I love it. Why do you love it? I love it because if a picture looks good compositionally upside down and backwards, it will look good compositionally right side up. Is that right? It's following the rule of thirds. It's following the rules of how diagonal lines lead into an image to get your attention right. to a particular point. So if it's working one way, it's gonna work the other, and you, you tend to uh, Think visually abstract in an abstract sort of way. Right. And you oh. have a, a uh, bubble on top. Yes, helps you level the camera. Absolutely. And how long have you owned this camera? This is my third Wista. Oh. Since 1989. The rest were broken by your paparazzi. No, I got out of four, I got a got out of four by five for a while. You got rid of it, then I bought it again. I sold it, then bought another one. It was a cheaper model. I didn't like it, so then I pointed up a little more money and bought this current one, right. and I'm not going to sell it. And to load the film holder... You currently do not own a 35 millimeter camera? Not a film camera, no. You do not? No, I wish I did. Do you I own... Sold, I sold my Nikon f and I, I wish I had it. So this just... The back just pulls open. Oh, check it out. That just slips right in. Now I'm ready to take my picture. Back pulls open, slips in. You're ready to go. Ooh. That's it. It's as simple as that. Your film is loaded. And obviously you'd pull this slide out. The, right. And that will expose the film. You pull that slide out. Cock the shutter. Your picture's nice. been taken. Your picture's taken. Put the black slide back in. Yes. Pull, the, pull out the uh, holder. Right. Flip it over. Uh-huh. Put it back in. 
Pull out the slide, ready to shoot again. Take picture number two, correct. It's wow. simple as that. Do 8x10 cameras sort of have the same... Character? Same thing. Really? Same MO. Exactly. 5x7, even a big, huge 11x14s. Do they make... Uh, are, they, are the 8x10 cameras as compact as this? No, I mean, you know, it's it's this on steroids, you know, it's this right. bigger. But they do make ones that fold up and you can carry them, sure. Right. If you get prints made, will you do a contact print? You can contact print these. You know, it's like looking at a four by five inch print. It's not not big, but the detail is amazing. Right. Contact print, basically, for folks out there who's like, contact print, what? Basically, you're taking your image, if it's a negative, and you can't make contact onto a piece of paper and flash it with light. You basically... You're not enlarging. Right. You're just... The, the negative material comes in contact with the print material. You put it under a piece of glass, you expose it to light, you process the paper, there's your print. Right. On television or in movies, you've seen like photographers work in a dark room or fashion, they'll be picking images. Most people are used to seeing a 35-millimeter contact sheet, mm -hmm. and uh, Dwayne's photo in Parsons, Kansas actually offers it. They'll basically take your strips of 35-millimeter negative, do a contact, and then send you a piece of paper so you could see all of your images... You know, if you were not scanning, let's say, if you want to just look at your images and circle the best ones. Right. And then, you know, send that uh, negative back out and to make your prints. Contact prints with a negative or a positive this size are almost less proofy and more something to frame, yes? There are people who make a career, Mike, out of contact printing 4x5 negatives, and they don't even own an enlarger. Really? Sure, and they sell them. They mount them and they frame them. You know, you've seen prints. Maybe it's a, it's a big 11 by 14 frame and a big mat with a nice little print in the center of it. And it makes a really classy but very intimate, intimate presentation because you have to get close to the print to study it. Big, big prints. Yeah, they're impressive. They're huge. You can stand back 10 feet and look at it. But the thing with contact prints this size, you have to get closer to it. And some photographers prefer that presentation as a more intimate experience. I personally love it, you know? Right. I could print this in a, a contact printing frame as a little piece of glass. I could just expose it to flash it to light in the bathroom and a couple of trays, and I'm making, I'm making prints. Right. You don't need an enlarger, but they do enlarge beautifully. I mean, they enlarge right. incredibly well. How often do you get out with this camera these days? I, this year, I, you know, I've kind of been under the weather. I haven't been going out as much as I used to. But, you know, I used to go out all the time. I used to go out once every two weeks or so. Right. True or false? Is there a Polaroid back for this camera? Oh, Definitely. Because Polaroid, they make the, the peel film. They make sure. the 4x5. Fuji makes it. Many, many people use the monorail version of a 4x5 to shoot product photography or oh. people photography as well. And you want to proof the lighting. Right. So use Polaroid to do it. Right. Do you own a Polaroid back for this camera? I sold it when I thought Polaroid would no longer be available. Oh. But they're, they're, you can get them for like $20. Really? Oh, yeah. And and the, the quality is breathtaking. It really is, as as demonstrated by that Chelsea Usher. That was not even 4x5. That was, yes. a, that was a Mamiya RZ. Do you have that here? I do have that print here. Right, may I take a look? Sure. This is an image Dwayne took. It's a, uh, you took this. This is a... a um, what is the size of that print? This is almost four by five. This is, um, I was doing some uh, work on a film you were producing. Called Suburban Secrets. And uh, I was using a Mamiya RZ 6.7 medium format camera, and I had a Polaroid back, and I believe it's a seven by seven centimeter image size on a piece of Polaroid film. I was proofing lighting and, you know, stuff like that. Polaroid.com was uh, probably a very different Polaroid 
dot com in 2004. I never bought stuff online from Polaroid. I would always go to Fishkin Brothers Photo in Perth, right. in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, that always had uh, professional films in a refrigerator. And I would just go there and buy it out of the fridge, walk up to the counter and pay for it. I never bought it online. And they've gone out of business. And Paul Fishkin now works for Bogan Photo in New Jersey. And I saw him at the uh, the Photo East Expo show at Jacob Javits Center last year. No I was kidding. like, oh, Paul from Fishkin. I heard you guys went out of business. Are yeah. they out of business? Oh, yeah. Oh. As, as are most photo stores, I miss the big, the big, big, big ones like B&H and Adorama and Calumet. They're still around freestyle. Our good friend Joseph Sarno, who passed away this uh, past March, this was his last feature film. That he shot in 2004, Suburban Secrets. Uh, I produced the film, and Dwayne Polkew was the set photographer. And this shot, which I'm going to scan, if you don't mind, and put on our Flickr sure. page. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful shot of Isadora Edison. Yes. Um, and this was at a location. This is a house. Was this the house in Pennsylvania? Yeah, a rented house, and it had a very rustic. Oh, I remember that place. Look to it. And this is shot, if I'm not mistaken, in the kitchen. That's the kitchen. If you look in the background, you could see I was trying to go for a reasonably warm-toned, shallow depth of field. I was using a beauty light, a beauty dish for her face, and I think I was using an umbrella with a, an amber gel in the back. You could see some reflections I was trying to get rid of. But, I mean, it's a frying pan hanging up behind right. her. And I like this Polaroid better than the film I shot. Why is that? It just, I don't know. It just looks, I mean, I guess the first shot was the best one. Right. You know, and, right. I, and I hate that because you're like, oh, great, the film, the Polaroid looks better than the film. Since we're talking cameras, would you mind if I bring over a 120, 220 camera that I recently bought on eBay that I've never used? Oh, well, I figure we're talking cameras. Oh, no, no. We, I, we gotta go, I think we should have a couple different uh, segments on 4x5 in the future where we discuss, like, maybe Mike will take it outside, I'll take some photos of it, I'll process the film, and you could see, like, Mike's first foray into shooting 4x5 black and white. We could do that. We could also, I think, um, we should discuss photographers that use 4x5 in the books they've published. So, yeah, there's a bunch of different... Uh, today, I wanted to show Mike yeah, how well, to use absolutely. it. absolutely. I was going to suggest, actually, that maybe... Uh, you come back a different day, and maybe we could shoot a small video for YouTube. Oh, yeah. How to operate or load a uh, – I'm actually going to write it down. That is a Wista? This is a Wista, W-I-S-T-A. Yeah, what is it, model? You know, it's not a – I think it's a – they have so many different models. It, it's like – I think it's an SP. 4 by 5 Yeah. And I would love to do a video how to load it. Basically, if I have these days, if I have a film camera, I want to know if I can get a Polaroid back for it. Do you know you can get a Polaroid back for like a 35 millimeter Nikon? Yeah, Marty For Marty Forsher made the Forsher they, Pro back. They are yes, they are Forsher Pro backs, and they are now available on eBay.com. You know how much they went? I had one. You know how much they went for brand new? I couldn't guess. Seven hundred fifty dollars. They were an essential tool for proofing your, your images for if a client. You, if you wanted to shoot 35mm film and you wanted to proof it rather than using a separate Polaroid camera, if you wanted to see what the camera was seeing, you had to use the Forcher Pro bag. Right. I loved them. Yeah. So on eBay, I picked this camera up, and I will admit I picked it up, and it's been in a box. I only recently unearthed it. it. I've not shot with this camera. This camera was purchased from a, a former wedding photographer. And he sent me the whole kit. I have the camera. I have two additional lenses. I have the flashes. I have, you know, the, the mount for the flash. It has, you know, it has wedding written all over it. It looks like wedding photographer mount. First, I haven't even shot with this camera yet. I'm already thinking, hey, man, is there a Polaroid back for this camera? And, of course, there is. It's a Mamiya 645. This was the... That is the camera, right? The wedding camera. Really? I mean, 
some guys used bigger ones. Like I had the Mamiya RZ67. Right. But I, used, I mean, that was a huge camera. That was a monster. Right. You had to put it on a tripod. This was a standard of the industry in wedding photography for a couple of decades, I would say. Wow. This or a Pentax 645. But, but 6 by 4.5 centimeter negative. Bigger than 35 mil. You had the, the tonality and the sharpness. Mamiya optics. I mean, just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful quality lenses. Beautiful lenses. He has a Colt. Uh, a, he has a Koken filter holder on the lens, which tells me mm-hmm. that he did very a lot of things that I did as a videographer shooting weddings, uh, putting a soft focus filter for, sure, the bride, for the bride for certain shots. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, effects maybe an effects filter for you know something special. Um, and uh, the whole package is here. This camera is, you know, the, the, the auction uh, assured me it was, you know, everything was working. I have not tested this camera yet. Do not have an instruction manual. I'm going to go to Mike Butkus' site to see if I could find a manual. That's uh, orphancameras.com. And uh, as you can see, Dwayne, I'm making baby steps to, up to bigger formats. To bigger formats. It's very addicting. Now, I'll tell you something. Photographers who shoot view cameras, meaning the, the sheet film, yes. many of them start out with 4x5. Okay. Then they go to an 8x10. Then they get into ultra-large format. Why, why is there the steps up rather than just going right to 8x10, do you think? For the very same reason that you're you're ah. you're incrementally going up in steps now. Maybe there's you feel like oh I shouldn't. That means I'll be abandoning something else, and I'll, right. there's a learning curve with adopting something new. Right. I don't want to spend more money. I'll get addicted to that. Right. You know, I mean, there are people they shoot cameras. The piece of film is 16 by 20 inches. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, I think what's holding me back probably is just the fact that you know I'm so concentrating on Kodachrome. We only have three months left. That's taking up an awful lot of time. And, of course, my Polaroid addiction, <laughs> which I'm always shocked. I'm just so amazed of how important Polaroid was to photography that all these professional cameras relied on that Polaroid back. I relied on it for years. God, fascinating. So fascinating. And when you hear about things like Fuji just discontinued a film, I don't know if you knew, they just discontinued their FP100B, which is their um, their Peel film, mm-hmm. their 100 ASA uh, film, black and white. They just continued. They still make the color. They only make the the FP3000B now, and um, that stinks. That stinks when you start seeing. I mean, do, do you have a concern that these companies are going to keep tightening, uh, reducing the number of uh, films that are available? Well, they have been so. It's been steadily occurring, right? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why is you know you can only you don't you can only put Put so many fish in a fishbowl, and their, their attitude is, we're, dist- we're distributing product anyway. Right. We have website space. We have retail traffic. So why are we distributing and taking up our, our man hours with film when we can be doing something that's maybe going to be more profitable? So it isn't that people don't buy it. It's just that we, they can replace it with something else that will make them more money. Right. So as long as that continues to be, which is the nature of business – I mean, you know, you take something off. If something on the menu is making money, but you think something else is going to make more money, right. you replace it with something else on the menu. Right. And it's, it's just the nature of, of that business model. It, so It's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. So if, if all of a sudden there's some digital gadget that's going to make them a lot more money than having to go through the process of distributing film, uh, they're going to take that out of their catalog and add something else to it. Because it's like there's only so much space you can – Right. So that's you know, and it's a loss for people that like to have film and right. like to have Polaroid. So it's going to always continue. It's I mean, it's it's the nature of business. Well, Times change, and 
when you're shooting with your Wista, Dwayne, when you're done shooting, what, uh, who do you bring your film to for processing? I process it myself. You do? Yes. Awesome. I have for 20 years. Really? Except uh, E6, the, the, the – um, Right, right. The transparency film, but black and white I do all myself. Do you uh, – so you have chemistry on hand at all times at your place? I used to use a Jobo processor. Okay. But I wore – I literally burned it out. What is a Jobo processor? Jobo processor. <laughs> Platifer. It looks like a, a big tub. Okay. And, and it has a, a little little motor on it, a big motor on it. Okay. And it has a drum. You put the film on reels in a drum, and it attaches to this arm that you lower into a water-tempered bath. And it just rotates the film in the chemistry in the drum at a constant temperature okay. and processes it really cleanly. How many and, sheets at a time? Uh, mine did 12. Wow. Now, I don't have a Jobo because... I don't think they make them anymore, and I'm not going to spend money buying one thinking I'm not going to be able to replace the parts. So I don't. Right. So what I have is there's an ingenious web page that I found where this guy takes a unicolor print drum, okay. which is a drum that was used to process color prints probably from like the, the 80s, and it has little ridges in it, and you could take the four by five sheet film and just seat it right no inside the kidding. drum. I bought the drum. And I bought an Omega rotary base, which is a little motor that has little wheels on it that spins around. And that drum fits right on the base. I just put the sheet film in the drum, dump in like a pint of chemistry, press the button, and come back when I think it's done. Wow. I'd have to do that with the developer, with the fixer, with the st- uh, with the stop bath, and then with the rinse. Not a- Wait, okay. Pre-soak, developer. Stop, bath, fixer, rinse. Wow. That's what I do. Only four sheets at a time, but I don't shoot, you know, 100 sheets a month like I used to. I don't do that anymore. Do you enjoy doing that? I love processing film. You do? Because it's the buzz of looking at the image for the first time. I love pulling film out of a drum going, oh, look at that. Or, oh, God, I screwed it. Oh, God, there's a light leak. Oh, I screwed it up. You know, it's, it's that. I don't, mind, I don't mind processing film at all. I don't. Is there a time when you will have too much film and send it out for processing? Never, because I shoot less and less as I get older. Okay, okay. You know, I have such a back – most of my energies are spent scanning and, and figuring out what to do with, with the 25 years worth of images that I have. Right. So for me now, shooting is uh, – it's something I'll, I'll plan on. I'm going to go shoot maybe next month, something like that. Right. So I don't have this huge stack of film that I have to get, get done. If you're shooting uh, color negative film, will you do the C41 processing yourself? Yes, because you can buy C41 home processing kits on the bay. C41. Oh, easy. Oh yeah. Really? It's like it's like one more step. I think there's a bleach before the fix. Wow. And the temperature's a little more critical. No kidding. But yeah, you can do it just like black and white. So did we miss anything on 4x5? We're actually... Well, I think we should do it maybe a couple more times. Like, well, maybe, you know, maybe you, like I said, you, you could shoot a couple pictures. When, we'll do it when it's light out. And then I'll process the film and we could post it. And this was Mike's first 4x5 shot ever. It would be a fun thing to do. Maybe we could uh, shoot the Butler Center. Sure. We could do that. Right, we do it right here. Okay. We'll I'm do that. Maybe we go outside. Yeah. Or maybe I could get access to the roof. Oh, that would be great. see the whole valley here. Yeah. And... So. uh Set up a tripod, put the camera in the tripod. Right. Let you just compose. I'll let you compose a shot, you know, meter it. Great. 
Terrific. Be a fun, my, a fun thing to do. With my Gossen Luna Pro F. Gossen Luna Pro F. Because there's, you can't cover a format in one show. I mean, it's just a million different things you talk about. No, so at absolutely. least we, we describe what it was like to open it up, set up the lens. Yes. So people can hopefully get some sort of understanding as to what it yes. what it entails. It's very simple. I mean, that's, that's the point I wanted to get across today. It's not complicated using one. Right. There's a lot of swings and tilts and shifts, and you hear things like shine flug, and you don't need to use all those perspective control movements if you right. don't want to. You don't have to. It's as complicated as you want. It's as simple as you right. want. But the beauty of it is it's a big piece of film, and it's addictive with that big piece of film. And you can make lovely contact prints. So get out there and do it. Get out there and do it. I want to really quickly talk about our giveaways. We are giving away 10 certificates, to, 10 certificates to 10 different folks for... Film processing at our good friends at Sharp Photo in... Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Yes! Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Spencer at Sharp contacted us. It was his idea. He thought it would be a great idea. I'm giving away a roll of Kodak Ektar 25, cold stored, expired, so that uh, you'll have a roll of film to shoot and then send over to the folks at Sharp Film Photography Podcast at gmail.com. In your header, put Sharp Photo Processing. Tell me a little bit about yourself. We're also giving away, courtesy of our friends at Freestyle, a Holga 120 TLR camera. It's nice. It's a nice camera. Even Dwayne raised an eye when he saw this camera. Dwayne is not a toy camera guy, and I think he thought for a split second, hey, man. This, man. this is a little bit more than a toy. I think I want one. Yes. I change my mind every two seconds. Yeah, I don't know. I don't do. know what I'm talking about. A beautiful book, Pat Sansone's 100 Polaroids. Pat is in the Autumn Defense. He's been traveling around the country shooting Polaroid. We're giving away the book with a Polaroid one-step close-up camera. A book and a camera. Film. I mean, please. Film photography podcast at gmail.com. In your header, put Olga. In your header, put 100 Polaroids. Olga. Please do send separate emails for each contest you would like to enter. The rules to entering are, there are no rules. Just enter, and if you win, you've won, in the, you've won a prize in the past six months, and you win again, you know what? So what? <laughs> Who cares? We don't yeah. care. Yeah, man, you won. Get your entries in. By all means, please do send us a email. Tell us what you think. You heard the show, first time listening to the show, send us an email, filmphotographypodcast at gmail.com. We're going to be uh, going out tonight with a song by The Eye, The Eye, The Eye, The Eye. From, they're from Norway? They are from Norway, and a friend of The Eye sent us an email, and he said, hey man, thank you, I sent him some Kodachrome film, and by the way, I know these guys, they're called The Eye they're on MySpace. If you go to MySpace.com and type in the I, the I, you will find them very easily using the Google. The Google. And here's one of their cuts that they sent over. The I. And don't forget our show notes, which are uh, put together by our good friend, Rob Nunn. Thank you, Dwayne. Unlike John Fideli, who can't remember his own name. <laughs> Rob Nunn putting together our show notes. Thank you very much. Rob is also on the web with his own podcast at robnunn.com. Nunn with two N's. And, of course, our webmaster, Greg Dumont, who's always very helpful in helping us upload all these files to the interweb. Thank you, Greg. And to all the folks out there that have been listening, thank you so very much. 
this the end of our first anniversary film photography podcast. It's been an enjoyable and adventurous year. It really has. Looking forward to the fall. Looking forward to seeing folks at the PDN show in New York City. If you're going to be in New York City for the PDN show, please do send us an email. Let us know you're going to be there. We'll exchange digits and we'll meet up with you. Shake your hand and take a picture. All right, see you guys next time. Adios. Adios.